Good morning. Welcome to Jays Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Toronto Blue Jays win 4 nothing yesterday. Nice little palate cleanser before they hit the road. It was looking dicey there for a little bit. The offense continued to struggle early. Uh, Blake Snell tried to give them every opportunity. Blake Snell pitched five innings in this game. He put 12 runners on base and the Jays got one of them across. Now, it ended positive. Vlad hit a solo shot in the seventh. Alejandro Kirk hit a two-run homer in the eighth. They end up winning 4 nothing. Great outing from Chris Bassett. Good job by Meza, Swanson, and Romano out of the bullpen. However, for the first five innings, it looked very much like the first two games. Jays finished the game, by the way, one for seven with runners in scoring position, 10 left on base. Here's how it went down. And if you are wondering why the show is starting after a win with a negative tint, it's because the first five innings of that game are still fresh in my mind. So first inning, get a runner on and do a double play. Get a runner on, get picked off. Second inning, runner gets caught stealing. Two runners left on base. One comes through, our guy Jordan Luplau. Comes through with uh, one of his two hits on the day, an RBI single. Also drew a walk in that one. Still, though, you have a runner caught stealing and you strand two runners in that inning. So some bad with the good. Third inning, you leave one on. Not uh, in a disagreeable way. Fourth inning, you load the bases up with only one out and you get nothing in. Fifth inning, you put two on with nobody out and get nothing in. Again, um, I almost called him Tony Snell. Basketball brain. Blake Snell puts 12 runners on base over five innings. A lot of trouble with his command in this one. Jays only managed to squeak one of those 12 across. But again, of course, Vlad, solo shot, Alejandro Kirk, two-run shot. Both of those guys with really solid games, by the way. Uh, Vlad, in addition to the home run, had a pair of walks. Alejandro Kirk had a homer, two singles, and a walk. Nice to see that. He had kind of hit what we hope is the the low point of his offensive season. Uh, nice to see him have a day like that. Jordan Luplo in his first start since very early in the season, two hits, a walk and an RBI. Um, Bo Bichette did not have multiple hits. He did not have a single hit. That's been pretty rare for him, but he drew two walks uh, for the first time since May 14th and just the third time all year. So some positive there as well. Although of course, when you have that many positives and you only scored four runs, that means things like, well, George Springer didn't get a hit and Matt Chapman didn't get a hit. And uh, Kevin Kiermaier didn't get a hit. It's fine. You won the game. You got through it. Uh, you would like to see the offense capitalize on more of those early game opportunities uh, because, hey, you're looking at a, a series here ahead now against the Seattle Mariners where they're going to start three pretty good pitchers, too. They've got a decent to, to good bullpen. Uh, depends on your confidence level in old friend Taylor Saucedo maintaining this kind of smoke and mirrors effectiveness. Um, we're going to talk to Mikey Ahedo a little later in the show to get the Seattle side of that series. We have a loaded show today. We're also going to talk to Kylie McDaniel of ESPN in the second hour. Bowden Francis is going to join us at 11 a.m. He uh, started for Buffalo last night through three and a third. Uh, he is back to, you know, stretching out as a, as a proper sixth or I guess seventh if you include Hyunjin Ryu's pending return uh, starter for this team. And then around 1035, we're going to talk to Drew Hayes, who is the pitching coach for the New Hampshire Fisher Cats, where most of the pitching talent in this Blue Jays system uh, is concentrated right now. So that's a, a Fisher Cats team that has a lot of interesting names we can kick around with Drew Hayes. Uh, Alec Manoa starting this weekend. We can also maybe see what Drew Hayes saw from Manoa in his New Hampshire Fisher Cats start that, that helped lead this organization to be confident um, that, you know, games like earlier this week are, are a blip and not the new norm for Alec Manoa. So Jays win 4 nothing yesterday. They salvage one of three against the Padres. It's important to 
get any win you can right now because the AL East remains wide open. Um, Baltimore beats Tampa again yesterday. So Baltimore is now a game up on the Rays. Uh, the Jays five and a half back of those two and holding on to the final wild card spot right now. So uh, yes, it's only July 21st, but as Vladimir Guerrero Jr. would tell you after the game, yeah, they're looking every day. They they know what's going on around them. And now that the AL East is uh, is open a little bit, you've you've got to really put an emphasis on on this next little bit. That easy stretch of schedule doesn't come until late August. Shai Davidi of sportsnet.ca. He is on his way to Cooperstown. He's driving through upstate New York right now. Uh, Shai, how are you? Thank you for joining us. How's the drive? Uh, to be, or th- thanks. And so far it's been traffic free, which is a, a nice and pleasant surprise. Uh, road's been, uh, road's been easy, no rain, no weather, so hopefully it stays that way. Uh, so far, nice and easy. So far, so good. I uh, hope it stays that way. Um, so you are heading down to Cooperstown. Fred McGriff is going to go in to the hall via the Contemporary Baseball Era Committee. Scott Rowland got voted in, so a couple of former Jays here. Uh, what are you most looking forward to this weekend? Uh, the speeches are always the highlight for me, and you know, you wouldn't think it because Fred McGriff is. We may have lost shy. Hopefully that is a signal related issue. Um, The traffic's nice and clear out there. So we'll see again, Scott Rowland going into uh, the hall of fame this weekend. Uh, I think we have shy back on the line. Shy. Hey, Uh, yeah, I'm not sure where I got cut off, but I was was saying, I'm sort of looking forward to the speeches and Fred McGriff has always been known as a sort of quiet, low key guy, but he's also sneaky, funny. Hmm. So I think his speech has a chance to, to have some pretty good stuff in it. And uh, he, he's, a, he's a really entertaining guy. And I think that one's going to be good. And I think Scott Rowland, uh, I wonder, like, he's also maybe a bit more of a sort of a troll kind of sense mm-hmm. of humor. But I think we'll probably get some good stuff out of him too. So uh, it's always fun on induction day. And so really curious to see what the, what the speeches end up being like. With respect to Scott Rowland, obviously his time here in Toronto was fairly short. He he played, what, uh, 200 games uh, as a Toronto Blue Jay. But he's a guy that uh, instantly, and I, I remember going down to games and picking seats on the third baseline to watch him play defense. It's very reminiscent of, of Matt Chapman or, or vice versa. Matt Chapman is very reminiscent of Scott Rowland. Um, is the, the defense at third base, even in his brief time in Toronto, kind of where your head goes first with Rowland? Yeah, for sure. Uh, it's that. And then also, in a sense, his impact on the Blue Jays is, is he, because of him or the circumstances around him, uh, you know, the Blue Jays end up getting Jose, both Jose Bautista and Edwin Encarnacion. And that sort of sets the stage for their eventual return of the playoffs. And obviously the Blue Jays thought that Roland would, might have been the, in some ways that missing piece. And 2008 will forever be a, a season of missed opportunity where they, you know, they had the best pitching staff in the majors, but they made the wrong hire hitting coach at the beginning of the season, uh, pissed away half a, season, half, a, half a year of offense. And you know, if they're better offensively in the first half, you know, they're absolutely making the playoffs in 08. Uh, you know, and Roland was uh, was a big part of that team and kind of pulling it together. Uh, so I, I do think of that and, and the defense. And just, in essence, just the level of professionalism that he brought to that team. Uh, you know, they had Roy Halladay from, from a pitching standpoint, but from a position player standpoint, it had been a while since they had someone quite like him. 
uh, and then, and then, of course, you know, the the subsequent moves that happen as a result of them that end up eventually setting the stage for for the Blue Jays to return from the the long playoff uh, drought. Yeah, the the one specifically trade deadline 2009, they they turn around and deal Roland, who they traded Troy Gloss for in 2008, and they get back Josh Ronicky, Zach Stewart, and of course Edwin Encarnacion, who would you know wasn't it wasn't. Uh, a direct one-to-one you'd have to uh, lose him to waivers and, and then get him back uh, before he'd become Edwin Encarnacion but then yes the other element of that being uh, you know hey there's a hole at, at third base now what could that look like Jose Batista comes in um, you know around that time as well uh, late 2008 so um, shy on the Fred McGriff side he, he's a guy obviously was a big part of the the teams in the in the late 80s uh, a little before my time but a couple times leading the league uh, in home runs in OPS. Yes, it's the first base position, but he was also, you know, a, a stalwart on MVP ballots for the better part of his career. Why do you think it took, is it just the first base element that, that it took Fred McGriff a little while to get in here? I think it, the other thing is that you look at his numbers relative to others in that time. And, you know, he played within the, the steroid era uh, where guys were putting up like, you know, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, even in home runs. And he was just this steady, you know, 30, 35, and 100 every year. And it maybe within the context of the time didn't quite look as flashy as some of the numbers of those around him. But, you know, it's a guy who, as best as we can tell, in an era where there was a lot of, uh, you know, unsavory stuff, uh, again, as best we know, was, was clean and uh, was never tied or linked to any of the, uh, any of those, those, those things and was able to just not even not always be the prime, be considered the prime guy on his different clubs, but was always just instrumental in making everything go. And, you know, I think back to Chipper Jones uh, describing him as, you know, the, in a lot of ways sort of like the quiet engine of the club and what a difference he made when he finally got to Atlanta. So I think those things worked against him on the writer's ballot. It, you know, there was that period of time as well where he – there were just a lot of really good candidates in a short period of time, and voters are restricted to, to picking 10. And he got you know, it, those two things sort of conspired against him, and he ended up getting squeezed out there. And, and you know, I'm glad the, you know, the the committee ended up correcting that that one because I think there's a really strong case, really deserving case for Fred. And there's there's so much value in someone who is consistent, posts every year, no drama around him. It's the guy who does it. Uh, you know, I think about like the, the sort of the hitting equivalent of Mark Burley, and you know, it's very deserving. And, and again, I'm, I'm glad that one got corrected. Yeah, it's it's great, and it's obviously a n- nice little thing for Blue Jays fans to have a couple more guys in there who are, uh, you know, who have worn Blue Jays uniforms. That that's always cool. Um, the other cool thing I'd imagine I haven't gotten to do Cooperstown at all, uh, let alone as media. But you look on the website, you look at who's expected to be there. It is a long list of other Hall of Famers who are who are coming out. Is there anyone you're looking forward to catching up with, Shy? A little bit of everybody, and I know he's a bit reclusive, but if I, if I had a chance to run into Sandy Koufax, that would be uh, a big one personally for me, uh, someone who uh, I've always 
Joe wanted to, to, to come across. Uh, and, uh, you know, not necessarily the type to get too starstruck, but I think that might happen a little bit if, if that one were, were to happen. So, uh, yeah, but I, I think the, the, the list every year, it's like one of the privileges of being a Hall of Famer is coming back and watching the group expand and participating within that. And it, it, the Hall of Famers take advantage of it. And, you know, they, they, they do a great job of putting everybody up and, uh, you know, making it a, a celebration of baseball. And, and so to be steeped in the nostalgia and the history of the game uh, for a weekend, it, it's a real privilege. And uh, there's also, you also see sort of the weight of the moment hitting guys where it happens and they see their plaque and, you know, they're introduced within one of the, one of the most exclusive clubs, maybe not the most exclusive club in sports. And the way that it hits guys, it, it, it's really, it's really powerful. So uh, definitely excited to, to, to take that in this weekend. Well, I'm glad you get to be a, a part of it. I hope you come across Sandy. I, I know that'd be very cool for you. Um, this weekend, the Blue Jays are going to be in Seattle. You won't be there, of course, because you're in Cooperstown. But uh, I mean, at a, at a fan level, at a media level, at a just a interest in baseball level, what have you made of this decision by the Mariners to sell Jay's stuff and then turn around and not sell it? And we, of course, in Toronto, you, you got to be a little careful with with throwing stones because we're not that far removed from you know this market placating to Red Sox and Yankees visits and, st- and things like that in in an era where the team was less competitive. But um, from uh, afar, what have you thought of that Mariners Jay's uh, merch saga? Yeah, I mean, the, the one downside to Cooperstown is that, it, this, that series in Seattle is one of my favorite things to cover. So, you know, I'm definitely sad to be missing that. And having done that a number of times over the years and and, talk, and in talking to various bearers people about it, they, this whole weekend is super, or every time this series comes up, it's just super uncomfortable for them, right? Because nobody likes having a, an opposition fan base sort of take over your stadium. And, like, it is legitimately a takeover. Like, for people who haven't been there or experienced it, or I, and I haven't seen it really on TV, so, like, I'm not sure how it plays on TV. But when you're there, it, it is legitimately a takeover. And, you know, and shout out to the, the fans in Western Canada who make it happen because, you know, those, those, those dudes come to play. And... It's uncomfortable if you're the host team. Nobody would like that. But then you have to balance that against every team likes money, <laughs> right? <laughs> that, that's why they're open for business. They're there to make money. And so they love the, fan, the, the money the Blue Jays fans are, are coming to spend. And they would much prefer if it was all Mariners fans who were spending that money in their place. And I think that's the uncomfortable balance that the Mariners try to walk every year. It's like, well, how do we get the money, but how do we do this without alienating both ourselves, our players, and our fans? And, you know, it makes sense from a business perspective to sell some Jays merch. Uh, and from what I've seen, the Jays fans who are there, they, they, they come with uh, a good deal of their own merch. Mm. Like, uh, you want to see obscure Blue Jays jerseys. Like, there, there's a collection out there that's as good as any in Toronto that you'll ever see. But... Yeah. You know, you're going to piss off your own fans and, and, and piss off your players and piss off yourself. Like that, I mean, that's just the reality of the situation. So I, I don't think that there's any good way for the Mariners to handle this, right? Because 
you're in business, you're in business to make money. Blue Jays fans are coming to spend money, but you would much rather all that money coming from Mariners fans. <laughs> but that's not the situation that you're in, so you have to deal with it. You have to deal with it. You have to make the most of it. And certainly what the Mariners could rally cry in that room is, well, the best way to handle it if you're one of those guys is to sweep the series and take it off the Jays. Uh, we look at the Jays side of things here. They're going to go Kikuchi, Gosman, Manoa. Obviously a great sign that that Alec Manoa, or sorry, that Kevin Gosman rather uh, is through the issue with his side, through a bullpen the other day. Everything came out smooth there. Um, have you gotten a chance to to talk to Yusei Kikuchi at all or, or get the sense over the you know the year and change he's been here? Is this a meaningful return back to Seattle for him? Yeah, I think every time it is, and you know, it's not the first one, but he's been through it and he's faced the Mariners, I think, three times already since since he's left. And, and but he's good well. now. And, yeah, he's good and, now. And, 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 and right. And but he's also been like been successful in, in those outings as well. So, uh, yeah, there's some meaning there for him. You know, I think he feels that he wasn't able to be the best version of himself there for whatever reason. And obviously he's still chasing that and he's shown it in spurts with the Blue Jays. Uh, you know, I think there, there is some meaning there. Like, I'm, I think every time that you face them, it starts lessening, right? It's sort of like, Maybe that first time you see an X and then you see them again, you see them again, and every time the, the impact's a little bit diminished. Uh, I would think it's something along those lines. But, yeah, for sure, I think there's some motivation for him uh, in those starts. And, I mean, again, it's been reflected in the performances against the Mariners thus far as well. Yeah, six shutout innings against them in May last year here in Toronto. So uh, interesting to see how that continues. On, on Sunday, the Jays will throw Alec Manoa. Shy, I, I know his last start is a bit in the rear view now. Baseball moves quickly. Um, but we've had a couple days to sit with what Manoa did in that outing. Um, I know Manoa spoke to, to a couple people down at the park uh, this week after that outing about what the time down in Dunedin was like and what his focus was there. You know, losing a little bit of weight, feeling like he, he's coming back stronger and things like that. The start earlier this week was obviously a, a bad one, and, and it's a tough one to spin in positive fashion, e even if, you know, John Schneider has uh, has no chance, but uh, no choice but to try, and Ross Atkins has no choice but to try. Uh, what are you looking for from Alec Manoa on the weekend here? And, and I guess bigger picture, how how many, you know, solid Detroit Tigers like Alec Manoa starts would you be away from trusting that there's a, a better version of Alec Manoa back right now? I mean, that latter part's an interesting question. And look, where the Blue Jays are at, you have to give them a bit of runway because Alec Manoa is one of the most important levers you have to really boost your team. Like, you can make additions at the deadline, but you're going to have a tough time matching getting Alec Manoa back to form in terms of potential impact. And I think because of that, you have to give him a little bit of runway and you have to have some faith because you know that it's not that it's impossible that this is just potential that you're hoping on comes together. I mean, we've seen it for the past two years that it's there and it's trying to find a way to return to it. So you have to give them some reasonable runway, especially for the time being where you don't really have uh, an additional option, which is something that you will potentially start having late next week in Kenshin Ryu. Uh, in terms of what makes for a successful outing, you know, 
it, it sounds basic, but just see him being aggressive, uh, maybe with a bit more velocity on his fastball than he had in that outing uh, against uh, against San Diego, and then seeing a better slider. Right when that when the when the slider is a weapon, I think uh, I think it was 34 pitches with two strikes in the outing against San Diego. So he's getting ahead, but he's not able to capitalize and put guys away. And so that's an uncharacteristic thing for Alec Manoa. And when his slider is really good, then he's putting guys away, or he's uh, or he ha- uh, the slider slider is good enough that the fastball plays up a little bit, and he's putting guys away with that. So for me, if if you see those two things working in concert, uh, you know, the fastball being effective and the slider being effective and the two playing off each other to really amplify each pitch. That's to me a sign that Alec Manoa is getting back to where he needs to be. And I, I take it with the schedule events for schedule of events for hall of fame weekend. You can't do the like, Hey, I'm going to go 90 minutes out of the way to Syracuse tonight to watch for you and then book it over to Cooperstown. I, I take it. That's not going to work out for us. No, I've got uh, I've got some responsibilities as uh, BBWA president this year that I've got to attend. And, no big uh, and deal. Got some, and some writing to do as well. So, uh, afraid uh, I'll just be tracking that one online. That's uh, that's all right. We'll we'll do the same here. And hey, at least the timing for us lines up nicely. That flows. Uh, that happens before the Mariners game. So I, I'm sure uh, I'll have. I'm on the call this weekend with, with Ben Schulman. So I'm sure we'll have that on uh, before we do Jays Mariners, which is uh, a nice little pregame. Um, Shy, something you wrote about this week already was writing off of Ross Atkins media availability, the kind of unofficial pre-trade deadline, leave me alone until August 2nd. Now uh, media availability from Ross Atkins. I I know you wrote about it at sportsnet.ca and people can go check it out there. Um, But for us here on, on radio, did you come away from that media session thinking anything different than, than you did going in or, or was it pretty much what you expected to hear from Atkins? It was maybe a little bit more specific than he's been at different times. And, you know, the Jays are generally pretty measured and planned and thought out in what they put out in the public. And the fact that he talked about adding a reliever, looking for a depth starter, and uh, adding a position player, probably a right-handed bat or ideally a right-handed bat, that for him to kind of go into detail, sort of set that as, as a bar leads me to think that they believe that they're going to be able to do all those things because you don't want to put something out in the public, then you don't do it. And then all of a sudden it's, well, you know, you said you wanted, these are things you wanted. Why didn't you do that? So that to me, I thought was, was fairly interesting. And Look, I think it makes sense. The other thing is that he seemed to really describe a part-time right-handed bat in terms of the type of offensive player that that the Blue Jays are looking for. And, you know, in just kind of talking to some people and kicking it around a little bit, that to me sort of of seemed more like setting the floor in terms of what they're going to try to do there. But I wonder if they maybe try to find a little bit more impact in some way, shape, or form on the offensive side. And, you know, in an ideal world, like, you would add somebody to that lineup that the other team has to think about, mm-hmm. right? Just, just one more threat that makes pitchers uncomfortable, makes opposing managers uncomfortable. And that's for sure easier said than done. But there's some interesting guys out there, like, 
Cody Bellinger is obviously a name that's going to come up. The Blue Jays were tied to him during the offseason. It's a bit more of an uncomfortable fit because he's taking away at-bats from regulars if he's coming here. But if you think about what could give this lineup a bit of a jolt, like something along those lines would make a lot of sense. The price probably is going to be uncomfortable. It's a rental. But if you're kind of thinking how you can help this team, like, yeah, there are incremental gains. And I think the Blue Jays are going to be very much able to do that. But maybe there there's an ability to do something a little bit bigger too. And I think the next week and a half will certainly play in a decision. If someone like Dalton Varsho starts getting going and you think that, okay, maybe you're going to get, you know, a month and a half, two good months out of Dalton Varsho to close out the season. Well, that looks a lot different, but if he looks like, if he falls deeper in those current struggles, then is that something that you have to look at and maybe sort of cutting back on some of those at bats as good as the defense is and as impactful as a player and, uh, you know, dynamic a force he can be and like you believe in him long-term, but, you know, for the short-term, do you have to try to adapt there? I, I don't know. I just think that there's, so a lot of possibility on the table that goes beyond some of what he said as well. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's a great way of looking at it and thinking about it because, and I mentioned this yesterday, is like, yes, you could address the, for lack of a, a better framing, the Jordan Luplo spot on the roster and improve the utility of that 26 spot. But if you get someone like a Bellinger, Lane Thomas, pick your Tommy fan, pick your guy who can play some left field and Varsho's maybe not playing as much. And then Varsho improves your bench because that's a versatile lefty bat and defensive replacement and pinch runner there. And then, you know, maybe there are a few less DH days for Alejandro Kirk. Now he obviously had a, a pretty good, uh, pretty good day yesterday. So um, maybe they're not eager to do that, but there are a couple guys like Kirk and Varsho who, you know, you, you are running out of time to see them turn it around. And then Kevin Kiermeyer and Brandon Belt are on the older end too. And we've seen Kiermeyer's back cool off. So I, I don't think there's, you know, obviously there's no such thing as too many, uh, too many good players. Look at, and I look to the Whit Merrifield example and Maya culpa. I didn't love the Whit Merrifield addition at, at the deadline last year he'd been having a, a bit of a a down year and i'm a samad taylor guy believer um that looks like a bad take right now but also at this time it looked like well where is he going to play you know you have you have all these pieces and you have teoscar and lourdes in, in the corner outfield spots and you have espinal uh who was coming off of an all-star appearance at second base things change quickly and it's better to have too many uh than too few Shy, your sense of, and I know I got to let you go here in a minute, but last one on the trade market, your sense of, you know, obviously they're going to give lip service to the starting pitching thing. Manoa and Ryu, we're not going to have answers on how ready they are to contribute by the time the deadline rolls around. Um, but I, I guess my question for you more as our MLB insider here at Sportsnet is, um, given how few for sure sellers there are right now, and given that those are exclusively located on really bad teams that don't have a lot of starting pitching. Uh, and that's why they're bad. Is that market probably going to be too expensive for the Jays to shop in from a prospect perspective? Well, I'm going to, I'm going to start with first, like they're going to be more sellers by the time we're at yes. August 1st. Right. So the market now isn't what the market's going to be in say a week and a half. And so I, I, that's going to obviously impact pricing to, to some degree. The other thing is that if you're kind of going to spend in one area, is, is that where you most logically spend? 
Like, it, I think from a starting pitching perspective, the Blue Jays could do could find like this year's Mitch White and somebody with an option that can go up and down. Um, that would, to me, that's the kind of move that they're probably looking to make in the rotation. Now, like if the price on a starter just is absolutely makes so much sense, you make that deal and you figure out all the other pieces afterwards, right? Is it, you've got to get better. And if you've got a chance to get impact in the rotation and it's, it, it fits within, you know, your, your budget, you could do it. But I don't get the sense that that's, where the focus is right now. Now that could change, right? Like someone could get hurt or Alec Manoa could go sideways or Yusei Kikuchi could go sideways in such dramatic fashion between now and the deadline that you're like, okay, we have to do this. But I think right now, I don't think that's where they're at. And the ideal is someone with an option like a, like a Mitch White or like a more effective Zach Thompson that you have there in reserve in case something goes wrong because you have faith in the six guys that you already have in house. Yeah. Makes sense to me. And you know, the Mitch white name didn't work out, but do you see the, the logic of what the Jays were, were trying to do with that one shy uh, before I let you go here, you also wrote about uh, the blue Jays approach at the draft. Um, we are a couple days out from the signing deadline, but the Jays have done most of the work signing their draft picks. Um, and you, you wrote about the balanced approach to the draft, how they diversified their prospect portfolio, Arjun Namala, the number 20 overall pick, uh, a headline item there. But something that you had within your piece that I, I'm curious as to your take on is they end up with three Canadians, and at least one of those guys was uh, a pretty well-known, uh, a guy we expected to get drafted. Now it's just a question of does he sign? Um, but you also mentioned, hey, one of the undrafted free agents they signed was someone who had played in this Canadian future showcase that the Blue Jays are a part of. Do you think this front office is starting to see some returns from that extra investment in finding Canadian talent well in the ideal world that turns into a pipeline where you get to know your players so much better than everyone else and i but by your players i mean like the local canadian player better than all the other clubs and that down the line that pays some dividends because you see things or you know things that the other clubs don't know now now that's not the only goal or the primary goal of the canadian future showcase uh, which is an incredibly important event for Canada, uh, connecting young Canadian players, both with other major league clubs, uh, but also collegiate coaches and things of that nature. Uh, it, it, when it was not happening because of the pandemic, there was a lot of damage to Canadian to, to local baseball, and a lot of Canadian kids were having to find ways to go get looks down south which isn't ideal for the local baseball scene here. So I'm really glad that that's back. And I know a lot of people in the baseball community are, are very happy that it's back as well. Uh, but the, the added benefit to that is that, yeah, you, you, lay, you, you put together some groundwork with the, the Canadian player and that you can leverage that down the road. And, you know, the relationship with Sam Shaw, for instance, the, the high schooler that they took in the ninth round and uh, ended up signing uh, for over the slot there, the part of what led to his signing with the Blue Jays was the fact that they were really comfortable with the club and the relationship and what that opportunity would look like for him. And not just because he grew up a Blue Jays fan, but because he came to know some people in the organization, what the, how the organization would go about developing him at a deeper level than how we got to know other clubs. So that, that, 
is an added benefit that the Blue Jays have to try to leverage. And, yeah, maybe we saw that a little bit more aggressively in this draft. You know, sometimes that's a byproduct of just what a draft presents. But, again, in an ideal world, it's creating a bit of an extra pipeline or a competitive advantage for, for you as well while also contributing something that's very important to the local baseball scene. It's uh, it's a, hey, it sounds like a win-win to me. Uh, Shai Davidi, thanks so much for taking the time out on your drive. I hope the rest of the drive is as smooth as it's been so far, and enjoy Cooperstown this weekend. Have a great weekend. Shai Davidi, MLB insider at Sportsnet and Sportsnet.ca. Keep an eye out uh, on his Twitter and at Sportsnet.ca for all of his stuff off of Hall of Fame weekend, which will include a pair of former Blue Jays in Fred McGriff and Scott Rowland. Let's turn the page from former Blue Jays to future Blue Jays. The pitching coach of the New Hampshire Fisher Cats, Drew Hayes, is going to join us after the break. Uh, a lot of the pitching talent in the Toronto Blue Jays system right now has been concentrated at AA. That's a, a matter of timeline and things not going as well for the Buffalo Bisons as we've discussed a lot. But we're getting to the point in the year where you might see a guy or two promoted up to AAA. Paxton Schultz got that nod. Uh, we'll talk to Drew Hayes about what's working for that New Hampshire Fisher Cats staff who to keep an eye on, and hey, we're a day removed from Sam Robersa, who had a bit of an up and down first half, throwing five and two-thirds shutout innings yesterday. I'll also maybe try to pry for a Ricky Tiedemann update. Drew Hayes of the New Hampshire Fisher Cats joins us next as Jay's Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. The Toronto Blue Jays have some pitching depth. It's just not at the AAA level quite yet. A lot of the top pitching prospects in the system find themselves concentrated with the AA New Hampshire Fisher Cats. That's a matter of just the timeline of when these pitchers have come up, but also our next guest might have a hand in that as well. It's Drew Hayes, the pitching coach for the New Hampshire Fisher Cats. Drew, how are you, man? Doing well, Blake. How are you this morning? I am uh, I am excellent. I'm curious, before we get into some of your guys, your career path, the, the MLB draft was was just behind us here. You got drafted three times. Um, what what was that experience like for you to, to kind of keep throwing your hat in the in the ring there? Uh, it was fun. It was interesting. Uh, I got drafted out of high school, actually, as a shortstop. Um, at that time, I wasn't expecting it at all, really. I did a couple of meetings, but really unexpected and then a couple of times when I was at Vandy where it was a little more stressful where I was mm. expecting it and trying to sort out the uh you know the the terms of my my junior year with Seattle and then finally my senior year with Cincinnati and I think I ended up getting put into the best place for me for success and, and when I was actually ready to to be a professional and and hey with Cincinnati you end up making the major leagues playing with our pal Joey Votto for a little bit there um so 2017 is kind of the the last time you were on the playing side and you've made this switch to the player development side and now the pitching coach side pretty quickly here um what what has that transition been like for you over the last couple of years it's been interesting uh when I got finished playing I took about six months off and then I got into high school coaching and teaching with my former high school coach um, and did that for a year and a half or so and realized that, that really I, I wasn't cut out for a, a nine to five or a teaching job. I missed <laughs> the schedule of professional baseball. Uh, I missed 
being around the professional side of things. And so it's been really good. I was really lucky. Um, Gil Kim, Joe Scalfani, Joe Sheehan, uh, Corey Popham, a lot of the front office guys with Toronto were awesome to me and, and were very nice and kind to bring me on and then be able to put me in a position to be a pitching coach and, and move up a little bit. So it, those guys have been great, and it's a great place to work and a really good organization to be a part of, and I'm, I'm really thankful for it. You also get to do this thing like similar to John Schneider, who's now the manager of the Blue Jays, obviously, and came up with Bo Bichette and Vlad and a couple of those guys at, at each subsequent level. Uh, I know you've only been you know in the system as a pitching coach specifically for a couple of years, but you've now gotten to see a, a couple of quote unquote, your guys at, at two levels. Now, when, when you get to, you know, check in with a guy at, at say Dunedin and then you see him with New Hampshire as well and get to continue working on, on things with him as he ascends, uh, how cool an experience has that been so far? It's, it's really awesome. It's, it's cool to see these guys. Um, Simmer burst is an example of he was 19 years old and, and coming out of the COVID year and he's 19 pitching in low A and then seeing him advance and, um, pretty much our whole staff here that, that we have now are guys that I saw coming through Dunedin um, and they advanced to Vancouver and then I was able to reconnect with them this year. So it's it's really cool and I think it's a testament to our whole pitching department with, with these guys being able to advance and move up and be ready to, to pitch at this level. You mentioned Sam as one of those guys and still pretty young for the level, still just 21, had a bit of an up and down start to the season, even at the the Futures game. But you look at his last, you know, three, four starts with you guys at, at New Hampshire and especially yesterday, uh, five and two thirds shutout. What has started to, to click for Sam as he takes this next step? You know, honestly, I think it's just time. I think Sam, if you talk to him, he's a very mature 21-year-old, and a lot of times I think it's easy to forget that he's 21 years old. Um, a 21-year-old competing at this level and, and doing well is, is difficult. It's, it's not the easiest thing to do, and I think sometimes we we as fans or, or even as a department can want these guys to be ready sooner than they are, and it, these things just take time sometimes, and I think it's awesome. Sam's work is, is unbelievable. He's on top of his routines. He crushes everything that he does and I think his maturity helps him a great deal but he's just started to, to just execute some pitches better be able to get some pitches to his glove side and and has done a nice job of that and he, he competes his tail off every time even yesterday he was through five and talked to him and said hey you know how do you feel we can we can cut this here and he's like no I want to go I want to pitch I want to I want to go back out I want to get six and so I think the competitiveness combined with with some pitch execution has allowed him to kind of settle in here and he's doing a really nice job the fastball velos picked up this year which is encouraging, obviously, but again, that comes with some maturity and age as well. Uh, so uh, another guy who I think the the only guy on your your staff right now younger than him is a, is a guy who hasn't taken much time. Mason Flurdy, who was a fifth round pick last year, has already gone through. You know, this is his third level of, of the minor leagues pretty quickly here, uh, and, and he's pitching fairly well for you guys. What what are you seeing from from Flurdy, and what's allowed him to kind of hit the ground running here as a pro out of the bullpen for you guys? Yeah, Mason has a really unique pitch mix. His, his fastball is more like a cutter, and it, it's a really odd look coming from the far first base side as a left-hander on some left-handed hitters and even on righties with that pitch bearing in. And, and he's done a really nice job of just adjusting to the level. He's adjusted his routines in between. He, he's on, on board with our strength conditioning staff and ATC staff all the time on how he can manage his routine and be ready to pitch as often as possible. And, and it's really cool to see that maturity coming through even from a guy in his first full season. Um, so I think that's that's helped him a great deal, and, and he's just, again, another ultra competitor um, that when he goes out there, he's he's competing his tail off every time, and, and he expects himself to get 
three outs or six outs every single time out there. And I think that really helps him. But, but again, the pitch mix is, is unique, but it's, it's really good for him. He does a nice job mixing it up and, and able to land the breaking ball against both sided hitters, which, which is huge for him. And, you know, we, we can highlight the, the age and experience component as well with a, another guy who's had some success for you guys this year. Um, Adam Clopet's team was young for this level last year. And, you know, his his development, like a lot of guys right now, had the weird, you lose the COVID season. That's a year he might have been in Dunedin instead. Um, you know, struggles at the AA level pretty pretty significantly last year. And this year he comes out, you know, the ERA has almost been cut in half. The strikeout rate's up. The walk rate is down. Um, still, you know, that, that elite ground brawl profile. Um, I, I think because he was picked back in 2018, people might forget that he's still just 22 as well. Uh, um, what has worked for, for Adam as he kind of, you know, has righted the ship and got back on the prospect radar this season? Yeah, I think you nailed it there too. It's another guy that, that we forget how young he is. We forget he's 22. And I'm not sure if you've had a chance to talk to Adam or, or seen him, but like it, it's a big personality. He's, he's full of life and, and really enjoys the game and enjoys uh, being out there with the guys. But I, huge testament to him in the offseason. He's put in a ton of work. He's done a great job. He is another guy that's just on top of what he needs to do every day. I think he's refined his pitch mix a little bit. Um, he's found a little bit of who he is. He's added a new cutter this year that, that's really helped him in games. And I think just a little another year of maturity and growing up and, and figuring out who he is. Um, and I think it's it's a maybe a testament to the whole group as well with him, Sim, uh, Chad Dallas, who's here now, Ricky, when he was here. Um, a lot of these guys just get along really well with each other. Um, and it, it's a fun group to work with because they get along and they help each other and they feed into each other. And I find myself in bullpen sometimes when these guys are throwing, there's three or four of them there. And, and I'm just standing there watching them coach each other and talk to each other. And, and Adam's one that really does that. He sits in on a lot of our bullpens with other guys and, and helps coach them, which is which is great teammate stuff. It's it's stuff that that speaks to the the camaraderie of the whole organization, pitching department, um, and I think him just finding his footing as far as who he is, and then being comfortable with where he is and, and what he's doing, and um, has really helped him. He's full of confidence. He's pitching really well. The, the sinker's been outstanding, like you said, for ground balls. The cutters helped him a little bit neutralize opposite sided hitters, and so it's it's been really fun to watch him this year and, and see him him grow and find the success and. Um, have a really good season so far, and hopefully we can keep that going. And that, that's very cool to hear about the the camaraderie on this pitching staff and the way they all kind of try to pick each other up like that. You mentioned Chad Dallas uh, within that answer. He joined you guys mid-season here after a couple of tremendous starts at High A Vancouver. Uh, in your role as a pitching coach, what is it like trying to work a guy in like that on the fly? And how much of the groundwork for what you're doing with a guy like Chad Dallas was done, you know, in the offseason or back at spring training? Yeah, a lot of it was, and a lot of it comes from from our um, coordinators, Corey Popham, Frank Herman. They do a, lot, a really good job of setting plans for these guys. And then our high pitching coach, Joe Bonnet, did a great job with Chad, just checking in with him, with him in the offseason, making some tweaks to the fastball in spring training and while he was in high A. Um, and that's been a weapon for him since he got here. And, and our lower-level pitching coaches this year have done a fantastic job of getting those guys ready. Um, to, to come up and pitch at this level and, and hopefully be ready to go to the next level as well. It's it's a fun transition when guys move because it's we get to see the work that was done at a, at a lower level and then have those conversations with the pitching coaches there and see them transition into into having success here. And so that's always fun and it's fun to see how those guys mix in. And even Mason uh, that you mentioned, Mason, T.J. Brock, uh, Chad, 
Trent Wallace, a lot of those guys that come up from high A, and, it, and it, the camaraderie just comes with them, and it's it's held, and it's a really fun thing to watch. And Chad's another one. It's a big personality and really fun to be around every day. So it's it's awesome to see him having success, and he's going for us today. So hopefully he can have a good day today. Uh, Connor Cook, uh, another one of those guys who came up from high A midseason yeah. here. I, I know he had a, a bit of a, a blip last time out, but this is a guy with remarkable strikeout numbers, the type of guy who as, as a bullpen arm with, with a heavy strikeout mix, you know, those guys can sometimes move through the system a, a little quicker, and he's almost 24 now. Uh, what do you like uh, about Cook's kind of fastball slider combo there? And what's, you know, what are the next steps for him turning these unbelievable strikeout numbers into, uh, you know, reliable everyday production for you guys? I appreciate you bringing up Connor Blake. I can't believe I forgot him. He's one that I'm as close to as anyone um, and was last year in Dunedin as well. Uh, so I'm not sure how I omitted him, but no, he's, he's great. He's another one that, that works his tail off a lot. And the stuff is unbelievable. If you just watch him pitch, I, I, fall into a trap in the dugout of just watching him pitch and just looking over at the other guys that are standing there and saying, good Lord, this stuff is unbelievable. Um, but it, it's really good. I think the next steps for him are just refining the pitch execution a little bit. Like you said, he had a little bit of a blip last time, and it's probably from just making a couple better pitch decisions in certain counts and, and getting pitches to certain locations when he needs to. Um, and then the other side of it for him, Mason, TJ, any of the relievers that we have, um, that are going to move Troy Watson is, is kind of getting into different scenarios, getting into going three times a week, getting into going on back-to-back days, um, going two out of three days. Those types of things are, are some of the refining pieces at the end of it that, that I think will help make those guys ready for the next level. So um, I've buried the lead a little bit here with in terms of names that Blue Jays fans might want to hear about from this double A team. And Ricky Tiedemann hasn't pitched in a while. Word was he had thrown a couple of live BPs recently. And right before you came on, actually, the transaction wire hit that he's now off to the complex league to kind of build back up. Um, Where is Ricky in his recovery and how much are you involved, you know, day to day, week to week in what's going on with him at the Dunedin level as he works his way back? I had a feeling that we would get to Ricky at some point <laughs> during this play. Um, no, he's he's doing well. Ricky's one that I have a really good relationship with starting last year in Dunedin. And so I usually text with him uh, once or twice a week, just checking in, seeing how he's doing, um, talking to Corey Poppin, uh, our coordinator down there, and Frank um, at the complex, and just seeing how he's doing. I think he's, he's transitioned to the FCL, like you mentioned. Um, hopefully he can get a couple of uh, couple outings there and then see – see how he bounces back and see what the plan is moving forward. But the hope is just that he feels feels good, which all reports have been and from him has been that he's felt good so far. But hopefully he can just get these outings in, hold the velocity, and, and feel good coming out of them and then see where we land after that, hopefully in a couple of weeks. So when it comes to a, a guy like that who's missed as much time, and this is probably a, a high-level organization d- decision as much as anything, but um, you know, you're know you at a point now where you probably don't have to watch the innings number that much as much as we would have otherwise. Um, assuming things go well in these couple complex league starts, what will be the focus and the goal for, for Ricky with you guys? Will it just be you know getting him stretched back out and getting him on regular rotation again? Yeah, I think you nailed that too. That's that one's probably a little bit above my pay grade on on exactly what the plan will be for him. But the hope uh, the hope for me is just that he gets back here in, in a couple of weeks, and then we can see where he's at as far as how he's feeling, bouncing back, how he's recovering after after two inning outings, after three inning outings, and and see where we are there. I think the biggest thing with Ricky is just holding the velocity and and that he feels good coming out of those outings. It's been a strange year for him um, since spring training, you know, and and just getting him back to where he feels good and comfortable. Um, 
pitching multiple innings and getting to the two, three inning mark and then kind of see where we are there. Hopefully we, we stretch him back out if he gets to that point. And if he doesn't, then keep him at two to three innings where he's comfortable and, and he gets plenty of work in there for the rest of the season. And we look forward to, to seeing his progress there at the Complex League and back with you guys. Um, last one before I let you go, Drew, we're going to see Alec Manoa pitch again uh, for the Blue Jays. On Sunday, he obviously had a start with you guys. Curious as to, um, you know, he's had a couple MLB starts since then, but I'm curious as to what your role was in that or how involved you were with Manoa's one start with you guys. Uh, Were you fairly involved in that process, getting him ready for that outing, or or was that more of a, hey, swoops in, throws his innings, and swoops back out? Yeah, it was a little bit of that. And, you know, we had a couple guys in here with them. Um, And I think with Alec, it was just, I think the biggest focus with him was, I think they were focusing on his tempo down the mound. And I wasn't super involved in, like, setting up the plan. But I just know when he was here, he was great to work with. He was wonderful to all of our guys that were here. He he fit right in with everyone um, and was even helpful with some of the guys on helping with what they do routine-based uh, day-to-day with how they manage and he even sat in on some of our bullpens and and helped some of our pitchers with things that they were working on so so he was a pleasure to have here and it was awesome to have him here um and you know it was great to see him have success in his his start that he had with us and, and hopefully he can keep it going for the rest of the year hopefully he can and hopefully you guys can keep it going uh with the fisher cats uh rotation and bullpen uh i know it hasn't been you know the the strongest of seasons overall but the job you guys are doing with the pitching prospects everything seems to be uh clicking pretty well there drew thanks so much for taking the time out this morning good luck a little later today awesome thanks blake i really appreciate it drew hayes pitching coach for the double a new hampshire fisher cats they're a bit out of uh out of the playoff race right now but things can change uh pretty quickly in those leagues and they've got the pitching to get it done although uh, if it keeps going well, the the issue with minor league stuff is, of course, always that you uh, lose your guys to Triple uh, A. Uh, they just lost Arelvis Martinez. They lost Paxton Schultz a little earlier. By the way, uh, speaking of the Triple A team, and we're gonna have Bowden Francis on after the break. Addison Barger started in the outfield yesterday. It's his first career start in the outfield. So notable as uh, you know, a number of middle infield type prospects or even corner infield type prospects are concentrated on that Triple A team now establishing versatility seems to be the name of the game for the Bisons. About and Francis started in that game yesterday, went three and a third effective innings. He's back to starting rather than doing bulk stuff out of the bullpen. He's going to join us next. We'll see how he feels about that and what his time with the Blue Jays was like. Bowden Francis next on Jays Talk Plus on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Everything you need to know about the Blue Jays. Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jays Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Just talked to Drew Hayes, pitching coach of the New Hampshire Fisher Cats. If you are someone who scans the box scores of the Toronto Blue Jays minor league affiliates, as you should, as uh, is a regular morning activity for me. You would have seen not only the Fisher Cats yesterday, you would have seen our next guest starting for the Buffalo Bisons, giving up one over three and a third with six strikeouts. Bowden Francis joins us now. How are you, man? Good morning. Good morning, man. How you doing? I am good. Thank you for joining us. Uh, So you're back with Buffalo. You're back starting. I I know that it's, uh, you know, you were starting before and you were still giving length for the Blue Jays, but what has that adjustment been like uh, going back to the rotation for the Bisons? It's good, yeah, just to get back in the routine and stuff, um, get some good lifts and, you know, like kind of have more of a plan um, to take care of the body and stuff for recovery. And 
just uh, communicating with the catchers, you know, just working on good stuff, having a plan, and uh, it's been good. Been good, feeling like feeling like myself, and I'm happy with it. Is that the the biggest change? Is kind of what the workout routine and routine in general is like obviously there are maybe some things you do from a pitch mix or, or attack perspective but but for you you know day to day especially I know, I know you're a guy who puts a, a big emphasis on the on the mental side of prep as well just knowing your start date and being on a routine that's the biggest difference probably yeah um i feel like i attack people the same um but yeah i think the little things add up uh with you know like throwing programs and, and bullpens and weightlifting and kind of it all, it all kind of ties together, you know, like uh, you kind of have, you kind of know when you're going to throw and you know, when you take some days and take some some rest and uh, so yeah, it all helps really. Um, but the biggest thing I think was just staying strong, staying fresh, taking care of the body and uh, be ready for that fifth day. What is the difference uh, from the mental preparation standpoint? I know, I know you're someone who, you know, does, you know, some meditation and focusing on the breath work and things like that. The ability to mentally prepare for a start day versus the role where you maybe didn't know which days you were going to be uh, needed out of the bullpen for the Blue Jays. How, how did that change? Or, or is that pretty much the same for you, whether you're, you're pitching or not each day? Yeah, I try to um, just be very conscious of, kind of what the plan is for that day. Like if it's in the pen, then just staying calm, staying ready. Um, it's not as much of like a build up as much starting, you know, cause you have that whole day basically planned out. So it's a little more of a build up. kind of gradually goes into it. Um, so yeah, there's obviously a different routine with starting, but the pen, you know, it's been cool. It's, it's definitely a learning thing. Um, but I like the challenge of it and it's, uh, it's been good. I feel like it's, something you can't um it's like you either have it or you don't that day and you got it's it's good you have to have a short memory and you gotta like lock in quick it's like you're getting that phone call and you don't have time to really figure it out you gotta either gotta adapt or die type thing i like it i like having kind of like that pressure the the short memory element of that the the being able to handle the the pressure on short notice how much do you think that your you know, again, to go back to kind of the, the mental skills side of things, I know, again, you're a big yoga guy. I know a lot of your, your, you know, the Instagram captions or what you post on Twitter is a lot about, you know, staying in that present moment, blocking out noise, not thinking about anything other than what you're doing kind of that second. Do you think just who you are in that regard off the diamond helps prepare you for that kind of bullpen role? Yeah, I think it just helped me really grow through the mental side of the game. I think I that up a lot um coming up when i was younger and i feel like i'm someone that's very low pretty chill like heartbeat so i try to try to really hone in on that and work on being like pitch to pitch instead of like inning to inning or batter to batter it's just it's uh it's been something that's been awesome to see the progression of it and uh yeah it's been awesome uh, so to get back to, to this point, and I know you're with Buffalo right now, but that could be short term. You you played a big role for the, the Blue Jays over the course of June and a little bit of July. Um, I know you'd had a moment in the major leagues before, but you know, coming off the 40 man, coming back on it and being relied on um, a, a lot over that, that month or so where the Jays didn't have a traditional fifth starter available. Um, 
How how has that been for you in terms of you know feeling like you you've made it and you're a major leaguer again? I, I know you had a brief stint before, but you were you know you are a major leaguer now. You you had a regular stint here. Um, how validating ha- has that been for you? It's been big. You know, last year um, I came up from that small little stint, and uh, I struggled really hard after that coming down. Uh, just my stuff wasn't really too sharp. Um, fastball's a little down so to get back and uh i played some winter ball last year so i think it brought some confidence into the spring training and uh have solid spring training and then kind of kept it rolling and confidence was good and my pitches were sharp um and pete walker's always doing a great job with i just feel like we have a great connection and took that in and then when they uh had a little flare up in the forearm and I didn't really get too discouraged. You know, I just kept going, going, going. And then they, yeah, they selected my contract. And I was I was pretty, like, taken back, you know, just super grateful. And, just, you know, it's definitely, I feel like it was after they DFA'd, I just I felt like there wasn't, I wasn't going to get back with this team, you know, maybe a different team or, but uh, they believed in me and they see something and I'm just going to, and give it my all and try to be try to contribute as much as I can. Yeah, and hey, I mean, you you kind of have, have reinforced that for them with your performance when, when they have called on you. you. You mentioned your stint in winter ball there. You were down in Puerto Rico. Um, I mean, full disclosure, I, I'm not checking out the video of those Puerto Rico games, uh, but the numbers were were pretty striking, and it kind of you know raised some eyebrows ahead of spring training. What what did that stint in Puerto Rico allow you to work on last winter? Um, I was, uh, that last month at Buffalo before that I was starting to groove my mechanics, um, starting to click, you know, I started to, the heater started getting a little, um, higher the velocity. And so I looked at it as an opportunity to kind of continue that mechanical change, um, improvement, I guess you can say, and just to keep repping it. And, um, so I went down there and I just, it was just a good time, you know, it was like pretty relaxing, um, you can be yourself, you know, and immediately just kind of, that team was awesome. And they really, uh, they really just brought a good atmosphere for people to just work on themselves. And, uh, so I took that time and, and, uh, just worked on the heater really. Um, and it worked out. It was, uh, it was a great time. That team, uh, was awesome. Yeah, it seems like winter balls. Uh, winter balls a blast. Whether it's Puerto Rico, Dominican, uh, it seems like uh, a lot of guys get a lot out of it. So um, it works out. Obviously, you, you get this stint with the Blue Jays. What was the messaging from them when they had to option you back down? Uh, of course, not something performance related. Just kind of the way things go uh, when you have options. But what what was the message uh, from the team when you went back down to Buffalo? Yeah, um, just to kind of get back into my routine. You know, they uh, they knew I was out of, not my out element or position, but, like, just my routine was a little messed up. And, um, obviously, the options and, you know, they need fresh arms. And when you go, like, when they have, like, a longer distance guy, it's, it's kind of harder to stay up there because uh, you got to be fresh, you know, that next day or the two days after. So uh, just to get, go back and get some starts in, kind of build back up, be ready for next time they need me really. Um, so just getting ready for the next 
recall. Were you a little disappointed to miss the Matt Chapman shirt giveaway day? I was. I love that shirt. That guy's the man. Uh, yeah, he's got a good vibe in that shirt. That's sick. I hope one of the boys got me one. <laughs> well, I know you, the club he's probably got. You kind of one-upped them with the Booker shirt, right? Say, same idea, but your son's face all over it. Um, was that uh, was that the thinking there, or you just had that one on handy of your son? No, I had that. Actually, uh, my stepmom got it for me for Father's Day, so I had it a little before, and I decided to start repping that every time I throw. Uh, <laughs> just funny. I'm sure everyone loves it. It's awesome. Yeah, it is. A, it's a great shirt. It's funny. My, my brother has a has a two-year-old, and the first message I got after that hit social media was like, why haven't you got one of these made for me? So now now I got to do that next uh, Father's Day or, or birthday or something like that. Um, Jays have another giveaway coming up th- next weekend. It's a Grateful Dead tie-dye giveaway t-shirt. I, I don't Someone told me that you're a Grateful Dead guy. I, I you strike me as someone who who might be, and I know that the the cleat, the Nike cleats you wear, have a little bit of kind of like a blue tie dye pattern to them. Uh, is that something you want the clubbies to grab you as well? Yeah, I already texted the clubbies and the whole one. Nice. Are you a Grateful <laughs> Dead guy, or it's just more the tie dye element? Um, I am at the um, not growing up, but as a. Probably like three, four years ago, I started kind of getting that kind of music. It's awesome. Yeah, it's a it's a good vibe, and yeah, you seem to be you know like you said about Chapman, a bit of a vibe guy yourself. Um, I, I actually I, I wanted to to ask you something related to that. I, I know this is a little in the past now, but you. Yeah. Came together with a brewery in California to do a, a Bowden Francis Slurve beer. Um, and then, you know, I, in reading up on that a little bit, that's a brewery that really focuses on the environmental aspect, the solar electric powered um, brewing process and things like that. Um, what was that like for you and how cool an experience was that to, to kind of put um, put some of yourself into a, into a beer like that? Yeah, it was so sick. It was so humbling. Um I've always kind of wanted to do that and to find like a brewery like that. It just was perfect. Um, it's actually my wife's parents brewery. Oh, cool. uh, yeah. So it, I just love their message behind it all. I love the sustainability they have and, and their beer is, is like has really high rankings on a lot of uh, rewards and stuff. So it's been really cool to get the feedback and, People love that beer, so it was it was definitely an honoring thing too. Yeah, next time I'm I'm out California way, I'm going to keep an eye out for it. And, and I know it, on a more you know not that that's a serious, but on a more serious bend, I, I know you're someone who you know cares about the environmental aspect of things. You're a part of Players for the Planet. We had Chris Dickerson on this show um, not all that long ago. Um, why has that become a, an important cause for you to be involved with on the baseball side, but also in your personal life? Just, um, well, obviously, like, playing ball, I have, like, uh, you know, there's a platform you can use and, and just kind of spread the awareness about it. Um, but just growing up, you know, I just, I, I learned kind of, kind of from the other side. I feel like I just saw how gross it was, how some people treat it. So I was just, it kind of hit my heart. I don't know. It just, it stuck with me. It sat with me wrong when I see how people treat it. So. I think over the years it's kept kind of getting on to me. And then uh, finally I saw that players for the planet and really started opening up like the whole pe- pe- uh, like the beach cleanups. And I don't know, it was just really cool to get that many people involved with uh, such an impact, you know, and a lot of people.
and they see people doing it like big time players and then they they feel like they should get a, into that kind of stuff and it and it starts to snowball you know and i think it's important yeah, it's, it's a really good cause, and people can check out Players for the Planet uh, and the work they're doing for a little bit more. Maybe a, a Golden Shovel Award in, in your future, Bowden. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time out, man. Looking forward to seeing your next Buffalo start. Looking forward to seeing you back with the Blue Jays soon. Thank you, man. You're the man. Appreciate your time. Bowden Francis uh, started for the Buffalo Bisons, uh, Toronto Blue Jays pitcher, and Deadhead. We'll, we'll do a little bit more Grateful Dead stuff next week. I uh, Look, I'll pull the curtain back a little bit. Sometimes we as media can make sure we get a certain giveaway. I don't do it very often. Uh, usually it's more uh, a family oriented thing. If there's something that, you know, my mom or my brother or, or nephew or something like that want the Grateful Dead t-shirt, I might have to, I might have to make that play. I might have to make that ask. Uh, that's next weekend when the Angels are here. This weekend, the Toronto Blue Jays are down in Seattle, they'll face the Mariners for a three set. It's a pretty fascinating Mariners team, not just because uh, we get these nice wild card flashbacks to to last year, um, a two game series that we've all blocked from our memory. But there was also a big offseason trade between these teams. There's also the element of the way the Toronto Blue Jays fans travel for these games and the Mariners as a team that's 500 and five and a half games out of a wild card spot right now. Over these next 10 days or so, one of the more intriguing teams in baseball in terms of, are you going to buy? Are you going to sell? Or are you just going to hold still? Mikey Ahedo of Baseball Prospectus and the Never Sunny in Seattle podcast joins us now to talk about that. Mikey, how you doing, buddy? I'm so good. I'm happy to, I'm happy to be on with you. It's always a pleasure. Thanks, man. I, I guess we have to start. And there was my, my willingness to joke around about this got killed a little bit when we saw the Jared Kelnick interview. Um, but man, the breaking your foot, kicking a water cooler. We've had some weird injuries in the history of baseball. We've had, you know, the Clint Barnes venison trip. We've had on the basketball side, Amari Stoudemire, I think punch a fire extinguisher case and break his hand. Um, the, the Kelnick water cooler kick. Is this just kind of a snapshot of how the Mariners season's gone so far? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, I, I think, at the end of the day, Kelnick, uh, you know, we've seen thus far is, is really like, uh, you know, he's good because of his intensity. And he's also, uh, I think he struggles because of it, too. So, yeah, I think in his interview, he said it, it really built up. And, and I think I think they know that they're they're capable of more. Um, and I think DePoto was just on the radio saying, like, you know, uh, according to, to advanced analytics, like we're at least an average offense and with an average offense and elite pitching should be a pretty good team, but they haven't been thus far. So quite a bummer. Quite a bummer, and there's a little bit of that going around. The Jays just faced the Padres for three, who are in that similar boat, below 500 with a monster run differential and a good lineup on paper. Um, so when we look at the Mariners, 500 team, five and a half back from the wild card, um, you know, where are you in terms of what the direction should be these next two weeks heading into the deadline? Yeah, it's it's hard for me to imagine, you know, the Poto and, and the front office uh, really, you know, rationalizing like a, a, a punt to next year. Uh, like you said, having made the playoffs at that, you know, for the first time in 21 years, um, Having such a young core, I think, you know, uh, I kind of expect a 
uh, a combination of, of buying and selling, maybe. Um, that's typically what the Mariners do, but they also weren't in as good of a position as they, you know, have been this year and last year. So, um, you know, I, I think they're going to make some pretty, some pretty like minor to moderate additions at the deadline. And, uh, you know, I, I think, I think we've shown for quite a while that even if they, they look like good additions, uh, they usually don't contribute. So, <laughs> Well, we'll we, we can look back at a certain trade from this offseason and, and revisit that right now because after the Mariners uh, put the Blue Jays out of the wild card, maybe fresh of mind that Teoscar was the one guy that, that played really well for the Jays in that two-game series. These two teams make a, make a swap in the offseason. Eric Swanson and Adam Mako into Toronto, Teoscar Hernandez to Seattle. I, I know that Teoscar Hernandez started the season very cold, had a scorching hot June, and is kind of back on the cold side now. Um, what has the Teoscar Hernandez experience been like for you, been like for Mariners fans so far? Yeah, it's, a, it's been such a bummer. Because, um, you know, when we got him, uh, you, you know, it's kind of just like, okay, well, the defense isn't great, but he rakes like he, he hits the ball harder than just about anyone. If you look at Robert Orr from baseball perspective has mm-hmm. uh, a, a metric called damage rate and he's like top 10 in the league. So in terms of like actually, you know, punishing the ball, he does it better than anyone almost. Um, and, you know, something I've seen with, with the Mariners, I think in general, and this is probably league wide is, uh, they're just getting targeted, you know, they're fastball hitters. A lot of them are. And so they're just getting targeted with, with unprecedented, you know, uh, levels of, of off speed and, and breaking pitches. And Oscar Hernandez is like, I think one of the main ones. So it it seems like, you know, I, I think the hot streaks, it seems like it's like, yeah, he's, he's, he's getting into a string of fastballs here and there, but I think overall, like this, uh, somewhere between this and his 2022 and 2021, like I think that's the, probably the true version of him now. So it's it's been frustrating, but he, yeah, he really is one of the guys that's, you know, one of the only guys that's that's hit in streaks. So yeah, and he's at 16 home runs, so you all you always get the the home run power there. And yeah, you mentioned the damage rate stat from Robert Orr, baseball perspectives. We call that the Matt Chapman stat around here because Matt Chapman's <laughs> right near the top of the league in it, and and. Basically, yeah. basically, I used Matt Chapman's April to ha- to use that stat to explain it to people. It's like, yeah, this is what Matt Chapman's doing. So, um, you know, at least good that there's some process stuff for Teoscar. I'd imagine he gets very few fastballs this weekend against a Jays team that knows him well. The other side of that deal, mm-hmm. and we can we can put it Adam Mako aside right now, kind of quote unquote just a guy at high A right now. Not not a particularly strong season for him right now. So if we look at this as Hernandez for Swanson, Hernandez is about to be a free agent. So the, the Mariners are getting one year of him. Swanson a, a bit more control, a couple more years of ARB eligibility here. Um mm-hmm. obviously Eric Swanson had some very nice results for the Mariners last year, but it was a bit curious at times as an outsider, and especially in that wild card series, despite the 168 ERA and the the very high strikeout rate, the Mariners didn't really seem to trust him in super high leverage spots. Now, maybe that's because they had Munoz and, and Suwald, um, so so they didn't need that. But what has your you know, as a Mariners person to see what Eric Swanson's done this year, not a 168 ERA, but pitching more frequently, pitching in higher leverage and being pretty effective for the Blue Jays. Are you surprised to see that? Did you think this was the next step for Eric Swanson? 
I love I love Eric Swanson. Um, you know, I think. Yeah, I th- it's, it's been great to, to see him get more opportunities. And, uh, you know, I, I wrote an article uh, in the offseason about the trade. And, and, you know, one of the main things I wrote about is, like, he was, you know, like, like he was better than Paul Seawald last year in terms of a lot of, uh, you know, the kind of peripheral stats. Um, and so it was very, very, very strange that he didn't get any run until the very last game of the season or, or a, a playoff game and you know it was because they went 18 innings um you know he just has such a uh like he has a special fastball and the splitter i mean as you know you have kevin gossman any any splitter is going to make a a fastball play up um you know for whatever reason it seems like the fastball efficacy has has dipped and i think because of that uh so has his overall line but you know, I, I think I think uh, in terms of his 2022, when you look at his his stats, like you know, he was running a mid 30s K percentage, and and you know, like you said, the ERA was in the one. So, um, you know, I, I I don't know what the perception is in, in Toronto, but I think this is a pretty good season, and and uh, you know, I I I think this is a, a wrong take now, but. Uh, before the season, I was like, uh, he might be better than Jordan Romano. Wow. Yeah, that's a, that's a bold one. And, and Romano's been pretty, <laughs> pretty effective here. Um, some ups and downs as with almost any reliever. Um, but yeah, the, the returns on this one are all right for the Blue Jays so far. Although their bats, you know, at times it's looked like, hey, they could use another righty slugger uh, in the middle of their order. So we'll see how uh, that plays out the rest of the season here. Um, Seattle does not have a real issue with the rotation. This has been more on the hitter side. We are going to see three pretty good starters uh, from Seattle in this series. We're going to see Bryce Miller tonight who made the jump from double a right to the majors, despite even a poor start uh, earlier in the season at double a, what has worked for Bryce Miller making the maybe not unexpected, but a quick jump to the majors here for Seattle. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's been super cool to watch, uh, you know, him debut because he, you heard about the fastball and you, I think as he got closer to the majors, you also heard, Oh, this guy's ripping off, you know, a, a breaking ball shape in the eighties that, you know, he's getting two or over 20 inches of sweep. Um, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've heard, he's pretty much only throwing fastballs, um, you know, even to this point, in the season, uh, he, he's throwing, you know, almost 70% uh, fastballs. And I think he's been able to do so because his, his fastball shape is so, uh, it's so unique. It's just so flat. And it's, it's really difficult for, um, for hitters to pick up. I think the weird thing about him is that, you know, the, the advanced metrics, they say like, you know, all of his, uh, pitch shape should be, you know, anywhere from average, probably above average to elite. Uh, but they just haven't, they haven't really got chases. They haven't really got whiffs. Um, so I think, you know, we're really seeing, I, I've kind of comped it to to kind of like a Logan Gilbert type of rookie year where, uh, you know, the release points aren't quite matching up. The the secondaries aren't playing. And, and actually like, it hasn't been until this year that Logan Gilbert has really dialed in all of his secondaries. And now, you know, he's lost his fastball to some extent. Um, and maybe that's related, but 
yeah, Bryce Miller's fastball, it's just so it's so cool to watch. And it, it it is fun to just see a pitcher just say, Hey, here's my fastball, try and hit it. Yeah, here's my fastball. Here's here's my fastball in the zone a lot. And it's that, yeah. you know, high spin type, but not exclusively high in the zone that we see some of those high spin guys uh use. And, and it's also it's kind of a profile like I don't know when Bailey Ober at six foot eight does it. I understand it a little bit yeah. more, but Miller's shorter and doesn't have, you know, that extension down the mound that we normally see from the, the high fastball spin type guys. It's a pretty fascinating, mm-hmm. uh, fascinating profile in general. Um, you mentioned Logan Gilbert, you know, a, a bit of a, not step back, but he just never walks anyone. And that allows him to not strike a ton of guys out. And then we're going to see Brian Wu on Sunday. Who's also been a pretty good pitcher success story. Uh, I'm curious as you take Mikey, how big a loss. I mean, we've seen over the last couple of years, the Mariners develop and graduate a lot of good young pitchers, but they just lost their pitching coordinator and Max Weiner to Texas A&M. How, how big a loss could that be for this franchise? You know, I think, uh, again, this might be kind of a hot take, but, uh, like, as far as I see it, and, you know, I, I talked to people on the side, like, about him before he moved on, and he really was, like, a rising star in, in terms of, I don't know, you know, the baseball industry. Like, he's my age. He's, like, he's 28 years old um, and really, like, really had a big hand in helping develop this pitching development. I think, I think the other, you know, part of it is it's not a one-man operation, luckily, and, and, and there are a lot of people around him and in the system that know what they're doing as well. But my kind of take initially was outside of Jerry Depoto and maybe like Justin Hollander, like I think this is like one of the biggest personnel, you know, changes or losses that um, you could really, you know, stomach but i think he's about to get paid uh the the money that's that's in college ball i think he's probably about to get a milli yeah i i would imagine he's he's getting uh, well compensated for the move as, yeah. as tough as that is uh for the mariners couple quick ones for you mikey before i let you go uh, i know the mariners did a filipino heritage night recently and they had uh, a filipino heritage jersey uh that that went along with that um you uh, as a filipino american how cool was that to, to see the mariners do that and did you get your hands on one of those jerseys uh it's it's super cool um you know, Filipinos are, I think, make up the, they're the third biggest Asian, you know, whatever Asian means, um, Asian group in America. And, uh, you know, I feel like in many ways we are up, underrepresented. And I think there are reasons for that. Um, but, yeah, it's, I think because the, the, the presence of Filipinos in Seattle is so strong, um, it's just, it's a beautiful thing to, uh, to be able to go to the park and look around in, in different sections and see, Filipinos, you know, watching the game. Um, so I think that's my third or fourth one I've been to. Um, I was actually in line and, you know, we're probably 40 people away from the front and they, they shut it down and they said, you know, we ran out. And I was like, how do you run out when you, you have, you know, a, a set uh, amount of Filipinos in the building? Um, but one of my friends uh, was, was nice enough to, you know, without me asking, uh, just asked me to meet him at a park and, and he brought it and it's like, you know, I think you'd appreciate this more than I would. So, um, 
Really excited. It's it's a pretty, I don't know if you've seen them, but the jerseys are pretty flat, fresh. Yeah, they're they're great. And uh, I'm glad you you got one. I don't believe we've done a Filipino Heritage Night with the Blue Jays here, but I know on the Raptors side and Raptors 905, the G League team, uh, there's an organization called Rise Tribe here in Toronto that's done a lot of great uh, Filipino Heritage Nights, including a, a Filipino Heritage Raptors 905 jersey uh, that I'll have to send you a, a picture of later. Um, the other Aww. the other element of this series, though, Mikey, has been uh, from a merch perspective that the Mariners were going to sell Jays gear in their in their team store and, and had to turn around on it. What, what did you make of that? I, I know it's kind of like, I, I'm asking you this a little tongue in cheek, um, but what did you make of the, Hey, we're going to sell the Jays gear. Oops. No, we're not. <laughs> Honestly, this is the first time I'm, I'm hearing of that. Oh, and yeah, uh, your boy, Paul yeah. Seawold was not happy about it on Twitter. That's so, <laughs> I love how much of a, you know, I think on the field, uh, you know, and, and, and on field celebrations, like, Paul Seawald's like low key kind of a troll, you know, he's doing like the, the sweet kind of stuff, the sword, like all that kind of stuff. I love his energy. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's a strange move, especially to, to do it and then walk back on it. I think, you know, he's probably stick to your guns, whatever, you know, whatever that is. Capitalism are the guns that they were initially sticking to there, Mikey. Um <laughs> Um, uh, last, sorry, I said that was the last one. I, I have one more. I'll end on a serious one. You just had a piece go up at Baseball Prospectus this week on Tyler Rogers, the, the Giants reliever who we saw here in Toronto not that long ago with that funky sidearm delivery. And he has now topped Adam Simber as the flattest thrower in baseball. This is a, this is a sad day as, a, an, as someone who is fascinated by Adam Simber's delivery that there's now someone throwing more of a quote-unquote rise ball than him in Tyler Rogers. Oh, it's, I've, so the initial reason that I wrote about Rogers the first time, I think it was like in 2019, and, and uh, one of my friends was trying to start throwing submarine and, and college ball, and he's like, have you heard of this Tyler Rogers guy? And, and I looked into him. So it's the third time that I've written about him, and I, I love him because he used to throw – you know, this rising, sweeping, you know, kind of rise ball. And, yeah, this year it's rising more than ever. And I think it's the closest thing that we can get to a rise ball. Uh, in terms of vertical approach angle, I think it's negative 1.6 degrees. I think the only way that you could get closer to zero is by throwing harder from his slot, which is, like, good luck, um, or <laughs> throwing, like, a 100 30 miles per hour. So it's super, super, super cool. Yeah. It's uh, it's fun to see. It doesn't look like it's very fun to hit against. There's also the fun element of him and his twin brother being in the same bullpen and being dramatically different pitchers um, yeah. from stuff wise and arm angle wise and all that stuff. Uh, it's a lot of fun. This series should be a lot of fun. Mikey ahead of baseball prospectus and never sunny in Seattle. Thanks for taking the time out this morning, buddy. Hey, thanks for having me. Mikey Ahedo, Baseball Prospectus, Never Sunny in Seattle podcast. Make sure you check out that stuff. And it's a fascinating piece on uh, on Tyler Rogers. And if you wanted to learn more about, like, when we talk about a rising fastball and things like that, what is actually happening, even from a side armor, where it very much looks like the ball's going up. Um, fascinating breakdown there. We're going to take a break. We come back. Going to break down a little bit more of the Blue Jays draft and how the system stacks up heading into the deadline with Kylie McDaniel of ESPN. Nobody's more on top of that stuff. Kylie joins us next as Jays Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. 
smart takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. It's Friday. We got one segment left. Although, as a heads up, I'm on the call all weekend with Ben Shulman for this Mariners series. So if you are checking Jay's Mariners out on the radio or on the Sportsnet Radio Network or on the app or anything like that, uh, keep an ear up. 10 o'clock tonight, 4 o'clock Saturday, 4 o'clock Sunday. A couple Sundays back was the MLB draft. Uh, the Toronto Blue Jays had an interesting one. We've spent the week getting to know Arjun Amala a little bit more. Let's bring in Kylie McDaniel of ESPN. You can keep up with all his work on the Power Alleys sub stack as well because there is a lot to keep up with. Kylie, thanks for taking the time out, man. How are you? Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, Got to ask, now that the this draft is done, I know we quickly turn the page to the next draft and things like that, but it's summer. Is it smoker season for you? I know you're a big smoker guy. Yes, I. Uh, so I just had my birthday just before the draft. Happy and, birthday! Uh, th- thank you. But the reason I say that is because uh, last year's Christmas and birthday were uh, a pizza oven and uh, smoker materials, we'll say. And then this year, because the the, the new thing I picked up is my uh, sister in law has decided that she wants me to make more specialty ice creams for her. So I got a bunch of things that basically make it easier to give her specialty ice cream. <laughs> Unbelievable. So, so that's like the new thing I'm working on now. There might be, you know, like cookie dough, cookies and cream, something right down the middle. But I've done some more bold, like peach bourbon. Uh, I've done some uh, cinnamon roll. Like I'll, I'll get out there a little bit. Yeah, we uh, look what I'm going to have to say to this is I'm on my way to Atlanta, man. I'm I'm, I'm ready to go. <laughs> Come on um, down. We got room. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the, the draft stuff, you know, is quote unquote behind us now how quickly do you turn the page to next year's draft or or is this a time where you're more checking in on the progress of say 2022 draft picks and and kind of you know recalibrate where you are on those prospects or or your own process now that we have a a little bit more information on those guys what what's next for you on kind of the the content and scouting schedule uh well the answer is always everything uh (laughs) I just wrote, uh, we had something uh, that's coming up, I think, in the next couple of weeks on the website uh, about the best draft prospects of all time built mm. around, you know, when Benyama and some of that. And uh, so I wrote uh, something that was like the top eight draft prospects of all time, which is obviously mostly looking backward. And the matter was like, we're going to do something about who are the guys that could be the generational draft prospects in the future. We realized they may not be. So I then went through the next three years of the draft and international to find who the best players are, which it turned out my instincts were about right. So I had 2026 20, high school players were technically being considered uh, some 25 and 26 high school players, including uh, Jackson Holiday's little brother. It turns out is the answer. The the uh, the, the families of, of baseball power keep coming through. But on top of that, uh, this morning on ESPN.com, my 2024 draft rankings just came out because the way they've done the schedule now is because they moved the draft back a month. They didn't move back all of the 2024 or the next uh, the next year's events. So half of them happened oh. before the draft. So I'd already been to three or four events before the draft happened for next year's draft. So that's why I was ready to do that already. And then also we have the trade deadline and updated minor league uh, prospect rankings all coming in the next couple of weeks, along with some free agent preview stuff. So I'd love to tell you I shifted from one thing to another thing, but I was kind of doing all of them all at the same time. Which is, uh, I mean, that's why you're Kylie McDaniel and why you have the the spot that you have. i got to ask, as much as I don't want to sound like old man yelling at cloud or whatever, but as we've seen some of the names of future prospects, 
is there's legitimately a kid named Espen, like ESPN? What what are we doing here, parents? <laughs> Uh, so the funny thing is after I uh, retweeted that, cause I, I follow all these scouting accounts that put up videos of players. And a lot of times I'll find guys the first time there because they go to some event, throw 90, the scouting organization puts out a video and I then know to ask scouts about them. And a lot of times I'll end up telling scouts about players. And one of the videos was a guy whose name is Espen, the last name Simpson. And one of our uh, publicity women uh, texted me immediately. It was like, Hey, we did a feature like 10 years ago about how people had named their kids Espen. We didn't know that was still happening. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I guess we found another one. There might be a few more that were, that we're yeah. smoking them all out now. If they come to a high school showcase, I'm going to hear about them. Yeah. It's going to be shocking in the 2030 draft when all the kids named Espen are overranked by ESPN relative to to, uh, to other outlets. Um, all are right, they going to be called TikTok or Hulu? Like, oh, my goodness. A lot of different directions. Yeah, it could. Uh, know, cord, cord cutting is tough for everybody. <laughs> all right, uh, Kylie, let's let's pivot to actual draft talk. Uh, the Toronto Blue Jays did not make your list of kind of winners or losers. They were just kind of in between. Um, the headline item, Arjun Amala going 20th overall. A, a lot of people had him, you know, borderline top 10. I know you had him 13th in your mock draft. Um, start at the highest level with, with Arjun there. Um, how happy should Jays fans be to have gotten him not just at number 20 but number 20 and, and below slot that let the Jays be a little more aggressive in the middle rounds yeah I mean they should be ecstatic uh I so he and Noble Meyer the top high school pitcher both had the same thing going on which was every team loved them and wanted to get them but the idea of paying full slot and taking them at a high pick and then seeing a whole round where the college players go behind them was a little bit of tough to swallow because the variability of both of those guys for different reasons, the model, there's questions on the hit tool and for noble Meyer, he's just a high school righty. There's so many bad things that can happen. To high school righties. Um, teams didn't want to do the sort of full slot, high pick whole thing, and then miss out on the college guys. And the, the suspicion, which is generally correct, which is if you're looking at two guys, one's a high school player, one's a college player, push the high school guy down. You might be able to get him your next pick. The college guy will never make it a full round because teams can't, or the, you can't call their bluff on, on a demand because they're going to sign. They're not going to go back to school as a 22 year old senior. <laughs> um, so what was happening with the is he was like in the mix for teams as high as like seven and eight and nine and 10 and 13 and had great workouts and they all liked him. Uh, and then all of a sudden he gets past there. teams perceive that he would be slot or maybe above, or maybe they can get him to their next pick or they've been focusing on other players. And then you get into this weird, weird nether world where once he gets past about 15, some of these teams maybe haven't prepared for him, haven't had private workouts, haven't done the deep dive on him, aren't ready to do it for what would seem like a false slot. And you would imagine if you're in the Namala camp and you're like, well, let's start feeling those calls in the 30s and 40s for team second pick where they can pay us comparable to, say, 15th overall money. And so I get the impression, not knowing this, I'm not doing any reporting here, but I'm guessing those calls didn't come at the same time the Blue Jays called. And it was like, all right, we can cross our fingers and hope that number comes. Or maybe we're just like the second pick for teams at that, the, you know, the, the second on the board at that pick too. Or maybe we're asking for a little more money than the guy that they actually want to take who will be a little less money. Do you want to take the bird in the hand or just sort of gamble and see what you can get? So I think he got into, because of the kind of player he was, got into a tough spot where he had to kind of decide what he wanted to do after he lost a couple coin flips up top, he very easily could have just signed at like 10th overall for full slot. So that as an outcome for the blue Jays to save 750 and get that player uh, is a great outcome. Similar to what happened with uh, Brandon Barrier, another high school player out of Florida high school pitcher, you know, very sort of risky and scary, even though everyone knows how good he was, 
And he also has been sort of a, you know, a solid uh, performer so far in pro ball after also getting him for uh, lower in the draft and for less money than people expected. So with Namala in terms of the player now, we're talking about a 17-year-old, one of the youngest players in the draft. So we're talking years before this becomes, you know, production. And there, there is a lot that can go right and a lot that can go wrong. But at the player level, I know you had written in your mock drafts, he was wowing teams in private workouts. The exit velos were, were really, really good. A real chance he stays at shortstop relative to some of the other uh, prospects in his group there. Um, what makes Namala so special? What goes into, you know, those elite exit velos and things like that at, at such a young age? So he is incredibly physically gifted in, in that he's, we'll say, 6'2", 180, and looks pretty obviously he'll end up being like 6'3", 220, which if you start looking at the guys playing third base or the bigger shortstops in the All-Star game, they look like that. And currently he has at least above average, if not plus raw power as a 17 year old, which if you even take those sorts of frames at that sort of position with that kind of power at that age, it gets to be essentially just all-stars and guys that are just like, you know, essentially like football athletes that also can swing at bat. Uh, Carlos Correa, Trevor story, uh, Alfonso Soriano, like you get into those kinds of names when you talk about like how advanced he is at that level. Um, and obviously at some point, anyone who went in the top 10 picks was ahead of Mike Trout at the same age. So like you can play that game and kind of get in trouble. But when you're looking at the way that teams make decisions in the draft, what they look at is, uh, is, is what this player does well. Can it be projected into the future to improve and how good is he right now? And right now he's ahead of everyone else physically. And then the thing he's a little behind on would be performance in the games, but because he's been a year to two years younger than everyone else and has all the components to project that he will hit. Um, then that projection is there in addition to putting on 20, 30 pounds of muscle, all that kind of stuff. So you can then look at him and say, oh, there is like a real path, maybe a 10, 20% chance that he's like a perennial all-star. And that essentially didn't exist in this draft outside of the top five picks. There's just also a real chance that like he might not get out of double A, which all the college players in this draft, will they'll be in double A next year. Like that's mm-hmm. not a question. So the floor is so much lower. But if, for example, he goes to low A next year, demolishes it and goes to high A as an 18-year-old, that floor is now been risen like within a year it could be very clear that the floor was perceived as lower than it actually was that's just the kind of like roller coaster ride that you could be riding with him which is both up and down and so the the Jays, I mean, that's exciting. It's it's also a warning to to heed patience, which is uh you know we're not the best at that sometimes in baseball, even though uh, we know that with prospects. So part of what the Jays do here strategically is is like you said, they say 750k roughly below slot on Namala. They turn around and most of that goes to Landon Moraudis in, in the fourth round. Um, in terms of hey, you've got an extra 750k kicking around to go over slot with someone in the middle rounds did you like that gamble coming on uh, a guy like Landon uh yes at that point I think he was probably one of the best candidates to do that because a lot of those guys that got overpaid were taken in the second or third round Marotis goes in the fourth uh he was on maybe the best high school pitching staff since that Max Free, Jack Flaherty, Lucas Chilito. that was actually a high school pitching Jeez. staff those three yeah, all three were on the same team. Um, to be fair, it was one of those schools that cost like $60,000 a year in uh, Southern California. But uh, Marutis' team, I believe Irv Carter was also from that team, another Blue Jays farmhand. Uh, but Liam Peterson and uh, Hunter Dietz, uh, who I believe are both going to end up going to college. So Marutis ends up being the pro one of those three. Um, they actually faced, I was mentioning Noble Meyer earlier, Marutis uh, squared up Noble Meyer twice in a huge <laughs> tournament game, and he's not even a hitting prospect. Like he, That's how physically talented he is. So he was like the shortstop slash third baseman that had all the eye black and was the gritty player that could, you know, put the bat on 97 and then would come in and pitch in relief 
for like an inning or two, largely speaking. So this is like a somewhat of a uh, of a conversion athlete, uh, limited innings, that kind of guy really comes at you, delivers from a low launch, which is one of those things that, uh, you know, the data-oriented team is really like. Uh, he'll be up to 96, 97 at times. He'll have three above average pitches, comes at you with some aggression and intent. Some scouts look at this and they're like, oh, that guy looks like a reliever with three pitches and some command and some athleticism. That's nice. Wouldn't necessarily pay him a million and a half. And other teams are like, oh, well, this has all the components of being a number three starter. He just hasn't been allowed to do that yet because he's been too good as a shortstop or third baseman. And typically when scouts see a guy that is either, you know, a quarterback or plays another sport or hits as well, there's usually a little bit unlocked when they stop focusing on that other thing and completely focus on the main thing, which would be pitching for him. So he has all the sort of traits to project and to turn into, say, a pitching version of Namala, where he could be, you know, mid-rotation, frontline guy, could be a closer, could be a lot of things because he's just one of those guys that if you watch a baseball game, even the most casual fan would be like, the guy playing shortstop that's pitching right now seems to be good at everything. And it's like, yeah, no, that's the kind of guys you usually want to bet on. Speaking of two-way guys, before we let you go here and get on with your weekend, Kyla, you are part of uh, an ESPN piece looking at some hypothetical Shohei Otani discussion. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about about that um, the Jays were not one of those teams. They maybe don't have the the prospect cachet and the near-term pieces that the Angels might like. Do you have a favorite landing spot for Shohei Otani if he does go on the market, uh, having done that exercise now at ESPN? Uh, I think the sort of heavy favorite right now in free agency would be the Dodgers because they he's already made decisions in the past uh, that have not been focused on the most money or the best team or the biggest market. It's been, let's look at the West coast. Let's look at uh, places with, as, as we perceive it, large Japanese American populations. That's easy to fly back. Uh, and then also like a good team that uh, knows how to develop and keep me healthy and all those sorts of things. And so the Dodgers, are all of the things that the angels are, but have a bigger payroll and a better team and are more efficiently run. Like they essentially have all that stuff. And they just recently went under um, some of, some of the, you know, spending limits. So the, seemingly could then go back to where they were, which Otani would essentially single-handedly do that while also giving them an additional pitcher and a DH, which they now have. So like everything seems to be fitting together perfectly for that to be where he goes. That isn't based on any real like Intel, like his camp is telling everyone this or the Dodgers are telling everyone this. It's just a lot of, it's, you know, if you're in like middle school and they're like, Hey, you like that girl and that girl like <laughs> seems to indicate that she likes you. And like, we think it's going to happen. And you're usually right. Um, when, when you kind of put all these pieces together, but nobody really knows because he doesn't really talk about this and there's not a lot of leads coming out of his camp. In terms of a trade, I, I think if you're just looking at teams that seem to be on the precipice of making something happen, um, you could be looking at, say, the Rangers, maybe even the Mariners could take a step up and then get a chance to give him the sales pitch on Seattle. I could see Seattle, San Francisco, some of these teams that are also West Coast, also competitive. I could see them thinking, oh, there's a $10 million uh, price on being able to pitch him for a couple months and making the playoffs with him and doing all that stuff. And then we can be competitive if all we need to be is competitive and in the right location. So I think it'll be super fascinating to see what kind of teams kind of push their chips in. I'm not sure who's going to be traded. I wouldn't say that's likely. But even just hearing this team put forth a really strong offer, that kind of tells you what they're going to be doing in the offseason which I think will be really intriguing. And you can make a case that almost half the league should be doing that. So there's like a really big universe of teams that could be making a push for him. And the Blue Jays are on that list. It would make some sense. Yeah, it would make sense to me, and it would be very, very exciting. Uh, it would make this show more intriguing the next couple months for sure. Uh, maybe a few more earballs on it. Uh, Kylie McDaniel, I know you got a barking dog. I know you got a smoker ready to go. Uh, enjoy your weekend, man. Thanks for taking the time out.
Maybe I'll make some poutine. Who knows? There you go. Kylie McDaniel of ESPN. Uh, you can keep up with all of his work there and at the Power Alley's Substack, where he keeps his archive. Uh, we got about a minute left. Teeing you up for Jays Mariners. It's Kikuchi against Bryce Miller. It's Gosman against Logan Gilbert. It's Manoa against Brian Wu on Sunday. A couple things to watch for on the weekend as well. Hyunjin Ryu is going to start for Buffalo today. Addison Barger and Aurelis Martinez and a bunch of other guys continue to bounce around the diamond in intriguing fashion for that Buffalo team too. So since you've got a late Blue Jays start, maybe you check it out. Uh, Chad Green also expected to throw for A-ball Dunedin tomorrow. Uh, Show Ali will have a 9 p.m. Jays talk pregame for you uh, because, again, it's a 10 p.m. start today. You can check me out on the call all weekend with Ben Shulman. 4 p.m. start tomorrow, 4 p.m. start Sunday. Uh, thank you to Shai Davidi, to Drew Hayes, Bowden Francis, Mikey Ahedo, and Kylie McDaniel for coming on. Thanks to Jennifer Rolnick, Lance Kennedy, and Jeff Azaparty for all the great work behind the glass. Thanks for listening. Jays Talk Plus will be back 10 a.m. on Monday. Hope you all have a great weekend. See ya.